Sounds of History, the podcast of genèvemonde.ch. Sounds of History, hello and welcome. This is a, a new episode of Sounds of History, the history podcast on International Geneva, based on archive soundbites and stories. My name is David Glazer. Hello, Veronique Stenger. Hi, David. Our podcast today is dedicated to the European Broadcasting Union, the EBU. This is also the subject of our dossier on genèvemonde.ch. You can read it now and it's, it's wonderful, trust me. So, Veronique, why did you choose this topic? Actually, it's you that choose that topic, <laughs> David. Ah, so let's say it's us. <laughs> yeah, it's us. So, well, um, first of all, because of its topicality since the Eurovision Song Contest, which is one of the EBU's cultural events and probably the best known in the world. It had to be in Ukraine, but sadly, because of the war, they had to relocate it. Liverpool? Yeah. So Eurovision is the show you I either love or hate. The French comedian And uh, Guy Bedos, remember, said it was the stupidest show in Europe and the most watched in the world, too. And uh, we remember the line, uh, Yugoslavia, one point, Belgium, <laughs> one point. He was translating, Belgique, one point. He was making fun of this show. Well, actually, there have been a lot of changes since the French comedian sketch. Well, yes. Um, so as you, you said, it's a very popular program that is part of the history of European cultural diplomacy. But also we choose this subject for other reasons that more directly echoes the editorial project that we carry at genèvemonde.ch. So the EBU is the largest alliance of public service media in the world and the SSR in Switzerland has been a member since its creation in 1950. And the EBU is therefore a history of the media in Europe, but it is also more broadly the history of international cooperation in the field of communication, a subject that few people know about and that we at genevemonde.ch wanted to discover. So what exactly are we going to talk about when we talk about the EBU? For me, it's a bit strange, so <laughs> you have to explain. I'm not going to explain it uh, now, but uh, you have to wait, uh, wait a little. <laughs> okay. But anyway, we are going to talk about the EBU, but also about another international organization, which is the International Telecommunication Union, because these two institutions are in fact closely linked together. We are also going to talk about technological innovations, the telegraph, radio, the First and Second World Wars, propaganda, cultural diplomacy, and so on. So a lot of very interesting things. 
Excellent. A rich sounds of history indeed. I can imagine that the subject of the EVU and broadcasting on the European or even global scale also has historical links to our city Geneva, also Switzerland. Absolutely. The EBU and the ITU are two international organizations that have their headquarters in Geneva and thus share a link with the history of international Geneva. Geneva and Switzerland have also been important historical places for the development of international cooperation in the field of communications, a history that is not well known and should therefore be of interest to the listeners of Sounds of History. Did you know, David, that Switzerland has been home to the second oldest international organization since the end of the 19th century, the Universal Postal Union, which was founded in 1874 and still headquartered in Bern today? And no, I must uh, admit my <laughs> ignorance. No, uh, the Universal Postal Union, that's what yeah. you said. No, I didn't know. Yeah. And second question, that is my quiz to you. <laughs> Did you know that the first international organization to be created was the International Telegraph Union, founded in Paris in 1865? No, no, the International Telegraph Union. No, I didn't know. It's the ancestor, I guess, of the International Telecommunication Union. It makes sense. ITU, absolutely. ITU. Yeah, yeah it yeah. makes sense. Absolutely. Back in the day, the telephone and other communications networks helped bring people and nations together, if I understand correctly. Yes, and I will go even further saying that technologies such as the telegraph and then the telephone provided the necessary conditions for the development of international relations. The League of Nations is beginning to emerge victorious from a deep crisis. It belongs to the states that are convinced that it fulfills a vital function and represents an instrument of protection of the rights of the peoples against the spirit of conquest and domination with the aim of pursuing the maintenance of peace and the consolidation of the Geneva institutions. Monsieur le Président, Mesdames, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, as the first delegate of France, I come this year, as I have the past years, to bring to this rostrum an act of sincere and ardent faith in the League of Nations. So, you just said that communications were essential to the development of international relations, and we've just heard a soundbite of a big organization, the League of Nations, La Société des Nations in French, and we heard one of his representatives at that time in 1929, José Cairo Damata, and it was broadcasted on Radio Geneva. We also heard a famous voice, the voice of Aristide Briand, a major actor of the League of Nations on behalf of France. In Switzerland, the radio became the first media in the 1930s. The Swiss radio broadcast the programs of the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation, the SSR-SRG, but also the international conferences of the League of Nations. Yes, David, and this is actually a very uh, interesting story because when the League of Nations was um, set up in Geneva, the question of communications was 
proposed from the very beginning. And uh, the League of Nations even created its own radio station in 1932 at the Palais des Nations in Geneva, which is still in operation. And the League of Nations broadcasts its telegrams and its radio programs from uh, this radio station uh, since 1932. And this station was known as Radio Nations, or in French, Radio Nation. And I think that the transmitter was located in Prongin, near yeah. Lyon. So if we go back to the end of the 19th century, communications between nations and even between continents developed rapidly thanks to these technological innovations. The communications rapidly developed and these intensifications will soon run up against the national borders. Didn't the countries want communication to circulate on their territory? No, on the contrary. But the problem was the crossing of borders. In fact, international telegraphic traffic was subject to very high taxes, which you can imagine, David, would quickly become a problem. But besides the problem of cost, there was also the problem of the distribution of telegraphic taxes between the various countries. It was also necessary to be able to intercept the messages, then translate them and forward them to their agency. The taxation system and the translation problem were two issues that were totally new in international relations, and they will be discussed internationally at the end of the 19th century. So communications had to be put in order, right? Exactly. Common rules were needed. In 1865, on the initiative of Napoleon III, an international The National Conference to discuss these problems was held in Paris and it was decided to create the International Telegraphic Union, which would make it possible to standardize telegraphic instruments and to define common international rules, particularly with regard to tariffs. And did Switzerland play a role in this story? Absolutely, and an important one, actually. This is something I discovered through my research preparing this podcast. <laughs> Since 1850, Switzerland had been involved in building a national telegraph company that had been placed under the control of the federal state for a series of reasons that I, I won't go into. But it's clear that in this period of national construction, The country had just come out of a civil war and in a, I would say, European environment plagued by revolutionary wars, control of communications and on a national and international scale was crucial. So Switzerland uh, was one of the founding members of the International Telegraph Union, which changed its name to International Telecommunication Union in 1932 and has had its headquarters in Geneva since 1948. Has a small country, Veronique, a country drowned in the mist of the European powers, it is easy to understand Switzerland's interest in the development of the means of communication, which facilitated the work of diplomats in signing bilateral agreements with neighboring countries, as well as that of Swiss industrialists in search of new markets, I guess. Yeah, this is all true. <laughs> But in preparing this subject, I also discovered that Switzerland also had renowned technicians, you know, engineers, who actually played uh, the role of experts in international discussions. And among them, there is one which I, I figured was an important one, which uh, was Louis Curchot. He was born in 1826 in Crissier, Lausanne. 
And Kirchhoff was uh, an engineer, and he represented Switzerland at the first International Telegraph Conference in 1865. And it was thanks to him and Swiss diplomacy that this conference was a success on a European scale. In 1868, a permanent office of the International Union was created in Bern, and Louis Kirchhoff uh, became its director until his death in 1889. This is London. First, listen to some personal messages. Gabriel remains anonymous. The penguin embraces him. David, what are these blurring waves? Well, they are justified for <laughs> this podcast. At the beginning of the 20th century, another problem arose. The waves that are blurred, the interference. Oh, yeah. This problem led to the creation of the ancestor of the EBU, the International Radio Union, uh, which was founded in Geneva in 1924. Can mm. you tell us more, Veronique, about the interference yes. problem, please? Yes, I can. So, um, actually, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was, I mean, you can imagine uh, all people using those radios. Uh, so, there was a surge of radio waves in Europe. And as you can imagine, this created interference problems. So, Sometimes these interferences are wanted as during the, the First World War or the Second World War where the jamming technique was used and this is actually what your archive sound was about now. Yes. So the jamming technique was used in both camps to prevent the transmission of sensitive information. <clears throat> But except from this situation, the proliferation of radio communications... But except for this situation, with the proliferation of radio communications, it was common for radio stations to interfere with each other because there were no rules at that time for uh, sharing frequencies. For 25 years, the International Broadcasting Union functioned as an international broadcasting exchange center in Europe. I am happy to have the opportunity to give the listeners of Soton some information about the International Broadcasting Union. I was very pleased to see the large number of members who came to Ushi last week to attend our annual meeting. It is heartening to see that, despite the turmoil in Europe, the IBU continues to function. The IBU is founded on the principle of cooperation between all countries who are interested in the development of broadcasting, which is international in nature. The creation of an institution of private law at the service of the public interest is a rational and practical way of solving, without delay and in a friendly manner, through direct and rapid contact, the innumerable questions raised by broadcasting. That's a soundbite from 1941, and it's from the RTS archive. We just heard the president of the IBU, International Broadcasting Union, Alfred Glog, a Swiss citizen. This is the oldest testimony of a director of the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation, the SSR-SRG. In this archive, one does not yet feel the effects of the war. One has rather the impression that the IBU was spared by the war. Well, 
Well, actually, David, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it's quite the opposite. But few people today know about the violent changes in broadcasting that followed the rise of Hitler. Uh, I make it short uh, because I think the podcast is going to be too long again. <laughs> but Nazi Germany had actually taken control of the International Broadcasting Union. For the regime, broadcasting was a central instrument in its foreign policy. So the IBU collaborated or not with the Nazis? No, actually, I don't think we can say that because, I mean, at least there are no archives that allow us to affirm that. But on the other hand, it is clear that uh, Nazi Germany took control of the international, international Broadcasting Union. Ah, so how did it happen? Uh, well... Through the successive occupations, uh, as you said uh, before. So just before, I mean, in 1938, uh, this was the glorious time of the IBU. It was a very uh, strong organization. It had 59 members and it even expanded and managed to organize one year later the European Radio Conference in Montreux, which uh, will result in a European convention. So the golden age. But after the Anschluss in 1938, the Australian National Broadcasting Service was incorporated into the German Broadcasting Service. And as one country after another fell in the following years, the broadcasting facilities were placed under direct German control or handed over to Nazi collaborators. So these Nazi-influenced organizations participated in the IBU and thus directly influenced it. And I think that we can also hear in the archives uh, that um, the vice president of the IBU in 1941 is actually a German. So you can feel the German influence is obvious. Above all, the facilities in Brussels fell into the hands of the Germans who were members of the IBU and the IBU was used during the war to discourage the Allies. Only for the Germans and not for the other side, so that after the war, the vast majority of countries decided to create another organization and to abandon the IBU in Geneva. Only Spain, Switzerland and the Vatican remained in the IBU in Geneva. Of course, Germany and Austria had nothing to do with it. The other countries formed another international radio organization, the OIR in Brussels, but this organization was quickly taken over by the communist countries. So, in this archive soundbite, we heard Dominique Carl in 1982. He was former deputy director of the SSR, SRG, the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation, and he talked about the history of the SSR. So, after the Second World War, the Cold War conflict between East and West led to a split. In 1946, the countries of the Soviet bloc withdrew from the IBU to form the International Radio and Television Organization, the OIRT, named International Broadcasting Organization before 1960. It's a bit complicated, yeah. I know. And the headquarters, you, <laughs> the headquarters were located in Prague. Yeah, and I love the phrase, like, uh, Geneva was not the place anymore. I, I think it's, uh, it's very interesting. But yeah, you're right. And in 1950, so four years later, the IBU was renamed the EBU for European Broadcasting Union. 
And it was actually uh, an initiative that came from the British Broadcasting Corporation. The BBC. The BBC, which uh, convened a conference of Western European broadcasting organizations in England in 1950. 23 European countries were represented, as well as North Africa and the Middle East. And here it's also something very interesting that we can talk about. It's uh, those uh, colonial links uh, that are uh, very visible. So the work of this conference led to the creation of the European Broadcasting Union on 12 February 1950. Our old auntie, the BBC. <laughs> the Bib for those who love her. <laughs> Sounds of history. Daddy, Flash! Daddy! Hey, watch her, Grace, he's terrified! Oh my God, this is ghastly. Get out of it, quickly! There's a fellow and Judy in those boxes at the end! Yes, all right, but you get out, Grace! Go on, get out! Look, can you take the pony? Yes, that's right. Now, come on, steady, Judy, steady. It's all right, old girl. Oh, part of the ceiling, Paula. It started the straw in the boxes near the door. We'll have a hell of a job getting the horses fast. Well, drive them. Come on, get up. Go on, stupid, move! The Archers, a 72-years-old show on BBC Radio 4, this take dates back from the 50s. Genève Monde, at the crossroads of history. The EBU brings together broadcasting services in the European broadcasting area. Can you explain to us, Véronique, how to become a member of the EBU? <coughs> So the first condition is that you must be an organization that has governmental authorization to operate a broadcasting service from permanent transmitters. And the second condition is that the broadcasting organization must belong to a member country of the International Telecommunication Union. So it's interesting here because you can we can see here again the links uh, that exist uh, between the uh, ITU and the EBU and that were actually links that were materializing already in the end of the 19th century. And by becoming a member, each radio television station undertakes uh, to share a certain amount of content, it can be images, music and today uh, podcasts, for example. So the EBU is a misleading name, uh, since every country in the world can potentially join the EBU. Yeah, it's strange, huh? Yes, I don't yeah. understand. Yeah, it but should be world now, <laughs> World Broadcasting Union, no? <laughs> yeah, but... Um, it's a brand. It's a brand. It's actually, it's, it's important because there is this European dimension that we might Uh, time to talk about after but, but you can see here that uh, there is a kind of um, geographical Europe which 
doesn't match the audiovisual Europe, which is, I think, uh, interesting. Uh, but there is a distinction in the in the statutes of the EBU, uh, broadcasting organizations that meet the conditions uh, for EBU membership but are not located in a country, uh, in a European country, are admitted as associate members and not as active members. Does the EBU have a mission to contribute to the construction of Europe? Is it an instrument of cultural diplomacy in Europe or in the world? Yes, uh, obviously, even if the statutes are not very explicit, uh, it is clear that the experience of the Second World War has contributed to making international cooperation in the field of communications an issue for Europe. You can see that the wording, uh, promoting exchanges, arbitrating disagreements on technologies. All this must contribute to forging a new vision of Europe after the war. And from 1950, when the construction of the European Union began, the EBU was called upon to play um, this role. Like other nation institutions, it uh, was uh, often presented, I mean, for the most uh, convinced um, about the European project, it was presented as an instrument um, at the service of uh, European construction. European television, almost exclusively public service, was to promote peace, prosperity and the education of uh, European citizens. We are currently discussing the creation of a series about democracy as well as a series on small towns. And there are also discussions about series like the Eurovision Song Contest, whose final will take place in Lugano, as well as the broadcasting of the civil and religious wedding of Prince Rainier and Grace Kelly, although nothing is sure yet. The preparation of the Eurovision program is not always easy because there are several problems. Legal rights, performers' rights, authors' rights, for example, as well as the rights of the organizers, financial problems, and also technical problems. All of these problems must be considered from all angles. We just heard Edouard Haas, who was an executive at the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation, the SSR-SRG, in 1956. He contributed to the programming of the Eurovision Song Contest in 1956. The Eurovision Song Contest, uh, which is an idea of Marcel Besançon, a Swiss citizen from Canton de Vaud, <laughs> who had that great idea of uh, using a simple competition, a song contest, uh, within that organization, the EBU, to the success we know nowadays. Yeah, this is a very interesting archives you found here, David, because it really shows the importance of Swiss uh, journalists uh, in this uh, EBU foundation, but also in promoting European programs from the 1950s onwards. So th I think this is very interesting to um, underline. Talking about this uh, creation of Eurovision, I must say that it was not only a response to you see kind of um, humanistic ideal. I mean, <laughs> there were also very prosaic um, challenges. And the idea behind Eurovision was also to reduce the costs of uh, broadcasting. In the 
1980s and 1990s Eurosport and Euronews were created. But apart from that, even in Euronews, national cultures are far from being overcome. Euronews was rather a failure, let's be honest. One feels that the channel was a tower of Babel that was difficult to pilot. There is a story, an anecdote we talk about in uh, the field of television. It's a television in a box. The presenters, uh, we don't want to see. And, and this is the recurring joke. Euronews is basically yesterday's news produced today to be broadcast tomorrow. The problem is the cumbersome production of a pan-European channel translated into several languages. Moreover, it is a problem in terms of finances. Um, despite the great progress of the programming uh, policy, it humanized the channel, but the income is not there. It cost a lot of money, and they had to let go several hundred employees, 200 employees to be exact. It is interesting because... You can see that technologically speaking, um, making those uh, European programs actually uh, it was actually actually possible. But of course, as you s just said, I mean there was chauvinism. So um, this is why, if you look at the story of these European programs, I mean there always have been a lot of obstacles. Let's listen to another soundbite of Hawkeye from the RTS. We go back to 1938. I don't think, Mr. Dova, that the question of technical and legal problems interests the listeners. I think most of the listeners tune in to listen to you talk about how the programs were created. Your observation is perfectly justified. The Congress was mostly concerned by the creation of the programs. But the question of how these programs are created mostly interests each individual broadcasting station. And the commission in charge has limited itself, as usual, to defining international programs. Sounds of history. We have just heard René Dova, director of Radio Geneva in 1938. It was broadcast on Radio Lausanne. And we can hear that it was not an obvious thing to propose international programs. Already a big concern. This is amazing. These archives, I mean, it dates from 1938. So this issue of creating international programs is a very uh, historical issue. And you can see here that there were actually many political, cultural, legal, but also economic constraints that um, were uh, also uh, underlined by Edward Haas. And these constraints weighed on the establishment and development of international programs. And then after the Second World War of European programs. Even though you, you want to create European programs, you have not to forget that um, public or service television channels are very uh, nationally encouraged. What were these political constraints, for example? I would say that the control of the instruments of mass communication historically was a prerogative of the state. So a transnational European project, David... I mean, this is difficult to set up for this reason. I think also uh, that after the Second World War, there were a lot of national competitions, and especially between the French and the British. Yes, that's clear, as always. And the British of the BBC were the only ones capable of mobilizing sufficient means because of the importance of their financing, their technological advance, but also, let's be honest, their skills in programming. 
Indeed, and, and these uh, political tensions partly explain why the great founding project of European Audiovisual Corporation has gradually been transformed so that the EBU has concentrated on the most profitable and, in a way, least conflicting activities. There are also cultural um, oppositions. You see the diversity of European languages, but also of ways of doing television, the difficulty of identifying what is a European subject, uh, all contributed to this evolution. The EBU also favors the survival of small radio stations, which often lack the means when they are affiliated to the EBU. They can have free access to programs produced by other member countries. We talk about this topic with Laurent Marceau of the Eurosonic Group at the EBU in the dossier devoted to the history of the EBU on genevemonde.ch this month. Getting back up to that first step, uh, it's uh, not even collapsed too far, but uh, it's adequate to get back up. Roger, we copy. It's a pretty good little jump. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming Do you remember that uh, sound, famous sound from July 21st, 1969? Of course. Magic of television, a small sentence broadcast from the moon by the EBU. That's one small step for a man, <laughs> one giant leap for mankind. The A had disappeared from the transmission. That was the problem of the mm, technological problems at that time. Yeah. So, Veronique, what was the content produced and broadcast by the EBU? At the beginning, it was mainly a matter of broadcasting live events like the one of Apollo uh, 13 mission, uh, but also uh, events that were thought to be um, able to bring people together. So the major uh, European events uh, were among them, such as the coronation of Elizabeth uh, II or the coronation of the Pope. But we can also uh, put in this list the funerals of major political leaders. And then there was also the development of uh, more popular programs, uh, such as the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, which started in 1956, uh, or the Games uh, Without Frontiers. It was mainly the World Cup uh, in football that worked, right? Yeah. There have been several agreements between the EBU and FIFA, maybe with the UEFA too, the IOC also. Yeah, absolutely, David. In 1959, sports programs already represented more than 70% of Eurovision programs.
This sound is symbolic of any broadcast, live coverage, and introduction of Eurovision programs. Le Tedeum by composer Antoine Charpentier. Uh, that music dates back from 1692. The EBU is for organization and it's the submerged part of the iceberg. And for the part that emerges, there is the Eurovision Song Contest, an incredible worldwide success with more than 200 million viewers, not to mention the really? year-round... Yeah, yeah. Not to mention the year-round impact on social networks. With Eurovision, we are in the soft power policy, the cultural diplomacy. This is true. I mean, beyond the extravagance, the glitter and the bling bling uh, <laughs> that some people really hate. But um, we must admit that Eurovision is a, an instrument, a vector of soft power and a relay of political messages. The countries that participate in this contest put their international image at stake. So, And actually, we sometimes um, speak about uh, nation branding. So Eurovision is not only about songs, but it's clearly about politics too, right? Yeah, right. And in the file that GenèveMonde.ch is devoting to the history of the EBU, you can discover the exclusive video and audio interview with Jean-Marc Richard, conducted with Olivier Lübkeman on Eurovision. And Jean-Marc has been uh, commanding on the contest for over 30 years for RTS. Quite an achievement. Yeah. Another interview with uh, Dave Goodman, the person in charge of the communication of Eurovision Sound Contest and junior Eurovision Sound Contest. In English, he tells us uh, about the geopolitics of the contest and the evolution of the contest over the decades. Not forgetting another interview with Laurent Marceau, the head of the EBU's Eurosonic Group, which allows the EBU's partners, uh, partner radios to exchange hundreds of quality content, such as concerts, every year. Thank you very much, Véronique. Thank uh, you. The sound recording was done today by Cyril Delamere. Thank you, Cyril. Thanks to all of you. Don't forget to give our podcast five stars, if we deserve it, if you really like it, and to spread the word about sounds of history around you. Thank you very much, Véronique. Thank See you, you David.
Sounds of History. Genève Monde, the shared history of international Geneva.